Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Who or what has preeminence over your life? According to Jesus, truly faithful disciples will live a life that demonstrates they will give up everything. Their chief allegiance is to King Jesus through whom we have everything that we've ever wanted. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32 this morning. And uh, as you're opening your Bible to Matthew chapter 10, I want to open our time together by asking you this question. Is Jesus the operating system of your life, or is he an app on your phone? What I mean by that is an app on your phone is just something you open when you need it and when you want it, correct? Versus the operating system that actually controls and dictates everything. And I think for many of us, Jesus becomes an app and not the operating system. Jesus deserves to be the iOS, not just an app you download from the store. He makes high demands on people who wish to be disciples. See, discipleship, church, you know this. Following Jesus, that's all it is. Discipleship is the process of following Jesus. Let's not, I'm going to give you a definition in a minute, but let's not overcomplicate this. We're just following Jesus, and it's an all-of-life endeavor. It's not a Sunday affair. It's not a MC meal meeting affair. It is an everyday affair that we allow the kingdom of God, the good news of Jesus, to actually shape everything we do. And I believe that for many of us this morning, that this is a reminder of the calls, the radical demands that Jesus makes on our life. But for others, you may be coming and maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. And you're wondering, why does this person, Jesus, make such radical claims? And why does he demand so much if he is this all-loving God? And I would say two things to that to you. Number one, no matter what system, no matter what story you give yourself to, it makes radical claims on you. This isn't just Jesus making radical demands, but if you actually buy into a a story of, let's just say, you know, American dream story, it makes radical demands on your life. Jesus is not the only one who makes demands. There are demands on you from every aspect in any story that you go to. So in one sense, Jesus is no different. But the question I would ask is this is number two. Are the demands that the culture gives on you versus the commands that Jesus demands upon you, which ones actually produce love and life and harmony and peace? Do you understand that distinction that I'm trying to ask? Is we're all, everywhere we go, we're going to get demands. The question is, which demands are actually going to give you meaning and purpose and find where you can be a place of, find a place of love in life? And what I want to share with you this morning is that the high cost of discipleship to follow Jesus is actually a loving thing for Jesus to do because in doing so, you will actually find love in life. But you are free to choose any other story, pretend there's no other demands, and actually go live that life. 
In fact, Deuteronomy, sorry, not Deuteronomy. Why am I, I've been studying Deuteronomy. We need to stop there. Second Kings, with Elijah says this, if God is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. Like, make up your minds and just figure out whose demands you want to give yourself to and go do it. But the question is, which demands are actually going to produce wholesome flourishing in your life and in the people around you? So Jesus is doing all of this teaching, all of this training, because he is making followers of him that when he leaves, he can send out. And this is like the very first step before they go out into mission to be disciples. Jesus gives them these words. And I'm going to read chapter 10, verses 32 to 42. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me, I will deny before my Father in heaven. And don't think that I've come to bring peace on earth. Okay, stop right there. Like, aren't there like Christmas songs like peace on earth? And Jesus came to bring peace on earth, right? And Jesus right here says, I came to not bring that. So right away, we're, this, is, this is strange. He says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to love everyone and forgive everyone of their sins. Yes. But what he says here in this passage, I have come to set a man against his father a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. We all get that. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Okay, this is crazy stuff that Jesus is saying right here. And so he goes on to say this, that whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The second demand that we'll look at this morning that Jesus makes is whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Because whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever who loses his life for my sake will find it. So whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by, he will by no means lose his reward. When Jesus had finished instructing his disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Father, as we look at this passage this morning, I just pray the Spirit of God would meet us where we are at as people, as a church, as individuals, that we would be more faithful followers of Jesus because we've met this morning. And we need the Spirit of God to permeate our teaching, our, our minds, our hearts, and so, Spirit, we ask that you would be present in a way that brings life and love and assurance and repentance and forgiveness to us, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
We started our series on this section looking at what a disciple looks like, that there are three aspects of discipleship. And I want to, as we began there and as we end this section, I want to start my sermon in a sense going over those three parts, three aspects of discipleship and actually making very different points this morning about them. But as we begin, discipleship is the ever-increasing participation of my life together with God's people in the true story of the world. So I don't know what discipleship is for you, but as I look at Scripture and I understand what Jesus is doing with his disciples, is he is taking individuals and bringing these individuals into a group and showing them how they are to live into what he came to do, into the story that God is writing in Jesus through his people. So discipleship, is not just learning a bunch of biblical doctrine. Okay, like, I'm, I think biblical doctrine is massively bored. But we're not people who are just trying to get an answer at the right test, get a good test score. Discipleship is not just doing certain aspects. Discipleship is actually being called into a story being called into the story that Jesus is fulfilling, that he is the center of, and now Jesus wants his disciples to go and live into that story. And if that's all true, the three aspects of discipleship that we've been looking at are, number one, the rational, or the head, or learning the story of God. See, What good is it to be a disciple being called into the story of the world and you don't even know what the story of the world is? What good is it to be a follower of Jesus and to not even know where Jesus is going, where Jesus is taking all of human history, what Jesus actually came to do? And this is what Jesus is explaining to his disciples. And we're going to see in the next section, chapters 12, 13, and 14, that Jesus is going to now, in these next sections, very explicitly unpack what he came to do. But before he does that, he is telling the disciples, this is the kingdom. You need to learn what it is that I came to do. See, we all possess some story through which we process all the information that we see, everything that we learn, everything that we do. All of us have a pair of glasses that we wear. None of us are completely objective people that when we learn new information, that becomes purely objective information. I don't want to, I'm not going to make any sides here. But I'm just going to say, if you're more like a red Republican, when you hear about the debt relief, you view that through your lens and it becomes a certain grid, right? But if you wear blue glasses and you hear about the debt relief, you hear that and interpret that through your set of glasses. This is why there's two pairs of glasses with very different outlooks on it. Does that make sense? It's because you already have in your mind an existing story by which you now process all the information. And I want to tell you that if the story of God is not that set of lenses that you are looking through, you are adopting some sub-biblical, unbiblical story. And Jesus came and he says, we're not Pharisees, we're not Sadducees, we're not Essenes, we're not people who go live in the desert. And we have all those people here that are 
you know, withdrawing from society, who are trying to be the moral right of the society, who are trying to be the, you know, the Sadducees that nothing matters, do whatever. We have all those groups today. And Jesus says, we aren't adopting any of those stories. We're adopting the story of God. And if you don't know what that story is, then you're going to be running off as a Pharisee or a Sadducee or as an Essene or whatever, or a zealot. Like that's the case. And Jesus is telling his disciples that before we go out and make idiots of ourselves, let me teach you the story. So you actually know what you're doing. And so if the biblical story does not control our thinking, we will be swept into the stories that the world tells about itself. So to be a disciple of Jesus is to grow in your awareness of doctrine and connecting your understanding of who God is, what God is doing in the world, who I am, and what God has called us to do based on this story. This is what should be permeating our minds. Those are the glasses that we should be wearing. And I wish I could just give all of us the story of God glasses. Does that make sense? But this lens of looking at the world through God's story takes time. You can't just go to the, books, the Bible bookstore and buy it. It is unwrapping all the cultural stories that you've heard in your life and looking at Scripture and having Scripture continually be washing and changing and dis making distinctions of what we used to think and now how the story of God is changing that. Like if you are the same person you were 20 years ago, Either you had it all right 20 years ago and you were Jesus, or you're not allowing the Word of God to continue to wash you and change you and shape you into having glasses and lenses that tell you about the story. Jesus was very concerned about doctrine. And not just so you could be a Calvinist or an Arminian, and not just so you could be a Baptist or a Presbyterian. He was very concerned about doctrine. Because he wanted to ensure that his disciples knew who they were in light of the story. But number two, the second aspect to discipleship that we need to see is that it's relational. It's participating in God's story with God's people. We do not live the Christian life as Rambos, as individuals. And I think we wrongly view our lives as individuals who then go find community rather than people whose lives are communal in which we find ourselves. Like, the culture we live in, and I don't know if, you have a, if you've seen this or not, but I think if you think about it for about 32 seconds, you'll agree with me, is that we live in a society where everything is about find yourself, be yourself, figure out who you are. It's all about this self-expression, self self, self. And we wonder why narcissism is such a rampant thing in our society. You know why? Because we've said everything is about finding out who you are. Be, I mean, we hear it on positive, encouraging radio, be free to be me. I got rips in my jeans and it's okay because I can be free to be me. And so we find all this stuff to find out who we are, and then we try to jump into community and make God's people kind of like this secondary add-on to our Christian life when that is actually the opposite of how God has designed it. 
Discipleship is communally informed. It's how God designed humans to operate. We were made to live in community to shape each other. So the best way to reorient your life around the story of God is to live your life with people who are trying to reorient their lives around the story of God. So you find out who you are only in a community. When you try to find out who you are apart from a community, it leaves you more enslaved than before. I'm going to do a little bit of world history with you. I hope I don't bore you. There's actually, there, I don't know if there, we might be out of coffee, so you just have to deal with it for a few minutes. But <clears throat> the Enlightenment. In the 1700s, there's this thing that came across the Western world called the Enlightenment. I think, therefore I am. You ever heard that statement? The idea that now if I can think, I can become something. We have science. We can develop everything through our thinking. We can actually provide people with true freedom where these, a lot of these people's ideas. They began to, in a sense, detach themselves from tradition and community, believing that this would actually free themselves, free people to find who they really were. If we could fashion our own future, if we could make our own ideas and come up with scientific facts and scientific realities, we could actually be more free. Get God out of the equation. And as you follow world history in the 1700s, we began to remove God out of the equation, but what did we keep? The ethics of God. We still believed in the morality of God. Until just recently, not only have we, in a sense, removed God from the equation in the 1700s, but now we've actually followed suit and are beginning to remove God from our what? Ethic. So this is what's happening. And in this adventure, I would call it, over the last couple hundred years in the Western world, one commentator, one theologian, says this, and it's on the screen, it is an adventure that held the seeds of its own destruction with itself. What we got was not self-freedom, but self-centeredness. Loneliness, superficiality, and harried consumerism. How many of you, this would not be your life, of course not, but everyone else's life in America, how many of you would say we're self-centered, we are more lonely than we've ever been, we're more superficial than we've ever been, and everything is about just consumerism? Is that true of our society? I, I, not you, of course, everyone else, okay? And what it's done is not brought free. Free is not how many of us feel with our, and this is him, our overstocked medicine cabinets, our burglar alarms, our vast ghettos, and our drug culture. See, this project, to find yourself, to be you all on your own, has actually left us far more enslaved than before. But it's also left us not just enslaved, but very confused. We have no idea where to go. This contemporary experiment to find ourselves, I've got to be the true to who I am. I've got to be free of my parents. I've got to be free of my, my marriage. I've got to be free of my responsibility. The more I can get free of all those things, the better my life will be. But this misses the point. Who you really are is never determined by the absence of restraints, but through a communal story that you participate in. Let me restate that. Who you are is never determined by just not having things. 
defining who you are as a person, must always come through a communal story. That communal story in our society can be many different things. That's why all of these clubs often are gra- people gravitate to, because they find a communal story to find themselves. And it's not wrong to do this, so don't hear me saying this is sinful. But the military provides that community for a lot of people. Bike clubs provide that for a lot of people. Soccer clubs provide that for a lot of people. Taekwondo dojos, whatever, find it for those people. Like we look for a communal story because inherently we find who we could be in that story. In other words, every self can only find itself in a community. So if we're shaped by community, we come to realize fully our existence only comes through community. Why do you and I, if we actually have the true community, God's people, and the reason it's true is not because we're awesome, it's because the Spirit of God is here. If we have that community, why do we shrink back from it? When we shrink back from that community, we are shrinking from actually being truly humans. But when we engage and press into that community, our self actually grows. And Jesus didn't train his disciples one-on-one. He trained them in groups to be people together because it would be in that group, in that huddle, in that community that they would actually be shaped. This is how God designed humans to work because we mirror the communal aspect of the Trinitarian God. God the Father doesn't just find out who he is apart from the Son and the Spirit, which is why we call him what? Father. Because he's only father in relationship to who? The son. Like you can't determine the aspects of who the Godhead actually are apart from each other. And yet we think we can be different from the actual image that we were made into and find ourselves apart from other people. And I say, good luck. You'll continue to be more enslaved and more confused. Jesus says, The aspect of discipleship is relational. It is you do it together. Number three, the third aspect is missional. This is acting out our role in our story. Mission is putting into practice the things we have learned both. We practice it out in the public square and in the private arenas of our faith. When you read Acts chapter 2, when the disciples, after the Pentecost had swept through and 3,000 people were saved, they, they give this description, and the disciples of Jesus in the early church were not only in their homes, breaking bread and praying and being devoted to doctrine, but you know, also where they, you know where they also were? Out in the public square. They were in the temple together proclaiming the good news of Jesus. That mission is putting into practice the things that we have learned in our life together in the public square and in the private arenas of our faith. That is mission. And the church, the people, is not meant to call men and women out of the world into a safe religious enclave, but to call them out in order to send them back out as agents of God's kingship. 
So when you become a Christian, we're not inviting you just to come in and sit in nice chairs and everyone sit on the outsides and no one in the middle. Thank you, six of you. Your reward is great. We're not asking you just to be comfortable. To follow Jesus means we are practicing together what we're learning together and going out in the public square in the name of Jesus, proclaiming that there is a new way to be human. Yes, that's us all. And this is what Jesus is preparing his disciples to do. And I'll say this, there's no participation in Jesus without participation in Jesus' mission. You know where Jesus is right now? Metaphorically, he's out on the front lines fighting against the powers of darkness. You want to find out where Jesus is? Go to those places, and you will find Jesus. So that's what we've been learning, is that this process of discipleship is this doctrinal head, uh, uh, rational part. It is this relational community life part, but it is also this mission of putting into practice all the kingdom things that we've been learning. But as Jesus begins to send his disciples out, and he's been teaching them this aspect of discipleship, there's another integral piece that Jesus gives. This integral piece is what I want to call the cost of discipleship. See, around all of this cool triangles and shapes and stuff, there's a circle. There's something that stands all around this, that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, it isn't just learn and live and go. It is count the cost. And it begins in this passage with the word acknowledge in verse 32. Jesus says, whoever acknowledges me. Acknowledge here is the Greek word like confesses. Whoever gives, I would like to use this phrase, faithful allegiance. This is an open declaration of faithful allegiance to Jesus. Whoever openly confesses and actually says, I am going to faithfully give my allegiance to this flag. No, but to Jesus. He is the one that my heart gives primary allegiance to. This is what Jesus is asking for. He's looking for a declaration that if you will acknowledge him, that if you will confess him, that if you will give him faithful allegiance, when you stand before God, he will confess your name. And he will be your faithful allegiance before God. But the opposite's also true. You have some other allegiance, some other faithful allegiance you give to when you stand before the Father. Jesus will not give faithful allegiance for you to the Father. See, it's one thing to be convinced that Jesus is an outstanding teacher, even that he is the Messiah, but it's quite another thing to profess to be his follower in the face of hostile opposition from people in influential places. See, the point is, is that following Jesus is absolutely free. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to work for it. It is all free grace. But know this, this free grace will cost you everything. It will cost you your life. 
In fact, Jesus now gives two demands of any follower that, he, that they must actually give into, that they must actually take account of. They must actually, must actually count the cost. And the first allegiance is this. Jesus says that if you're going to actually acknowledge me, you're going to be my disciple, and you're going to go out on mission, you must count the cost of your family. Jesus must have priority and preeminence over your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your son, and your daughter. Jesus says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus, in the previous verses, came and said, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. To bring division between family members. And I don't know what kind of Bible you have, but potentially in your Bible, it's kind of separated into like a different set of, it's not just line after line, it's like a quote, okay? And Jesus is actually quoting the Old Testament here. He's quoting a passage from the book of Micah. And in Micah chapter 7, I'm going to, I have it on the screen for you. This is what I think I do. This is what Jesus is actually quoting. He says, The day God comes to visit you has come. The day your watchman sounds the alarm. Now is the time of confusion. So don't trust a neighbor. Don't put confidence in a friend. Even with a woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. Why? Because a son will dishonor his father. A daughter will rise up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. See, back in Micah chapter 7, this is about 700 years before Jesus, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, was a complete disaster. It was a complete mess. They were living under an evil king who led Israel into idolatry. Injustice was rampant. I mean, there was all, I mean, Israel looked no different than any of their neighbors. And it got to be such a bad situation that Micah actually says that when the Assyrians come, they're going to be under such duress and such strange times that when this nation comes to oppress you and take you over, you're going to actually turn on your own family. And so when the day of the Lord comes, when the day God comes to visit you in judgment is when the day the family is going to actually split apart. And Jesus now, when he comes, which is actually the true day God comes to visit his people, not just in judgment, and, but also in salvation, he's actually saying if that happened back then with a foreign power, how much more is it going to happen when I come, the fulfillment of all the things that the Old Testament was talking about? Jesus is saying that when I show up, it is going to be absolutely natural, just as it was back then, when God visited you in judgment, that now he's coming to visit again in me. And it is going to be even more rampant, even more severe, that your family is going to actually be separated and this makes sense, because when two members of the family have two competing stories, two competing masters of cultural stories, when they come into contact with each other, there's going to be conflicts. And so Jesus is laying out what it means to give allegiance, that I have come 
in this day to bring judgments. And in that judgment, families are going to split apart. And if you don't love me more than your family, you can't be my disciple. Faithful followers of Jesus love him more than their own parents, and they love him more than their own kids. And I say this as a parent, that if you love your kids more than you love Jesus, you are not worthy, according to him, to be a disciple. Now, notice a little bit of hope here. Jesus doesn't say, you must love only me. He says what? You must love me what? More. Jesus is not despising children. He's not despising parents. In fact, Jesus is the one who says, let the little children come to me. But what he is saying is that who has the preeminence? Who are you most faithfully allegiant to? Your kids and their lives and all the opportunities and all the things you want them to become and all the things you want? Or are you faithful to me first? And I want to say this as a, you know, as a parent. Like, do you know why we struggle with this? It's because there is some other competing story of our culture that tells us what it means to be a good parent. And that means we must give them everything that everyone could ever have and have way more than we've ever had in our life. And guess where that came from? Not Luke chapter 9. Not Matthew chapter 10. That came straight from the Constitution. I don't, I'm just kidding. Don't, I'm, I came straight from the American story. And so even in how we raise our kids, we are having to compete in our mind with affections for who is having the ultimate story. Faithful followers of Jesus love him more than their parents, their brothers, their sisters. So parents, I don't know how you are, but I often struggle with this. Like, who does have precedence? And so I began to list some questions here that I would just ask you to think through. I don't have any, like, I wish I could, like, just tell you, I, this is it. You love it. You love Jesus more, or you don't. But probably, if you're like me, it's, like, up and down. But sometimes, finding a line is more difficult than we believe. And so, parents, here's a couple questions. Like, what store are you raising your kids in? Number two, parents, are you more concerned with your kid turning out all right? so that you find worth in yourself. See, sometimes we do this all for our kids just to validate our own selves. Okay? Let's just be honest. And parents, do you choose things for your kids at the expense of obeying Jesus? Yeah, I should just... I'll have my... I've, this is why it's hard to be a pastor. I have like my own personal parental views, and I don't want to press them down on you. But what I do want to say is that you have to choose who gets allegiance. And how that gets worked out, I'll let the Spirit of God do. Number two, Jesus says you must not only love me more than your family, but he says, number two, Jesus must take precedence or preeminence even over our own lives. So just not the ones closest to ourselves, but actually ourselves. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Even though the cross event had not yet occurred, 
the disciples clearly understood the metaphor of the cross. They had seen crucifixions before. It happened all the time. Jesus wasn't the first one they were crucified, and they were like, man, this is a weird, crucif- like, weird way to die. No, they saw it all the time. And when they saw a condemned prisoner bearing his own cross to the place of execution, it meant he was already dead. He was a dead man walking. So this metaphor, when Jesus says, take up your cross, means it is a, that you are alive, but you are dead. In the spring of 1945, a Lutheran pastor, a young Lutheran pastor, he's only like 33, awaited execution in a Nazi concentration camp. He had spent two years in prisons, and even while he was in before prison and in prison, he was writing, delivered Sunday sermons in prison, shared the gospel with all the prisoners, the prison guards. And this man, his name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. On April 9th, in 1945, Bonhoeffer was hanged at a concentration camp for his involvement in a small Protestant resistance movement against Hitler and the Nazis. But he wrote a book called The Call of Discipleship. And he writes this, and the reason I tell you his background is because what he wrote about is what he actually did. He says this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. If you're going to follow Jesus, it is a call to come and die. The cross is laid on every Christian. And the first Christian Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is to call to the abandon the attachments of this world. It is the dying of the old man, which is a result of his encounter with Christ. Once you have encountered Christ, you will give up everything. You will come and die to your own desires. You will come and die to your own ambitions. You will come and die to your own life. You will come and die to your own reputation. You will come and die to being the master of your own fates. And it may call you to come and die and physically give your life in martyrdom. Just so you're aware, there is more martyrs in the Christian church in the 20th century than there were in the first 19 centuries. We have more brothers and sisters who are martyred for Jesus in the last 100 years than we did in the last first 1,800 years of the Christian church. See, these demands of discipleship are intense. And the best and the only way to get ourselves to the point of being able to continuously say that Jesus is more important than my family and he's more important than my own life is to keep looking at Jesus. Jesus is not asking you to live an austere, secluded, boring life. He's asking you to live a life in the midst of a cursed world with the goal of representing that there is a new kingdom here. And this way of living that brings life is going to be counter the world that we live in, and so it's going to bring opposition and conflicts. And when we look at Jesus, this is exactly what Jesus did for you. He lived a life of faithful allegiance to the Father over against his family. I don't know if you know this, but you might. 
Remember in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus is a little boy and he's in the temple and he leaves his family and they can't find him and he's in the temple and what does he say? I must be about whose business? Because he had first an allegiance not to Mary and Joseph, but to the Father. And then when Jesus began his public ministry, he left his parents. I don't know if we like fully understand that. Like You grew up and became what your family did. You weren't Americans at the age of 20 and decided to do whatever you wanted. For Jesus to leave his family was, in a sense, in a sense, to cut ties with them. It was almost as if he was like the younger son in the parable of the prodigal sons. He wasn't asking for his inheritance, but he was saying, I have to leave my family, and I actually have to go and be about my father because what he is calling me to do And when he's on the cross, the disciples come and bring Mary, and they say, Jesus, your your mom is here. And what does Jesus say? No, my family is anyone who does the will of my father. He began to see that his true family was the family of God, his brothers and sisters, and he gave up his family because of a faithful allegiance to the father. And he not only left his family, but he took up his own cross. His cross led him to Calvary, where he not only suffered a criminal's death in a most horrific way, but he experienced all of the hell and all of the separation for all of God's people for all time as he was separated from the love of his Father. And why did he do all of this? For the joy that was set before him. Do you know what the joy that is set before him, part of that is? That's you. That's you, and that's you. That's everyone in this room. He did that for you so that you could actually have life. He did it so he could free you from this world's story and the world's allures to happiness that will only produce death and destruction and decay. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, and you want life, and you want joy, it will come. But in the meantime, it's going to cost you family relationships. It's going to cost you your own life. You must come and die. But knowing this, he says in verse 40, if you receive, whoever receives you, receives me and receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he's a prophet, receives a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person, because he's a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, will by no means lose his reward. What is the point in all of that? There's reward. Jesus is offering reward for those who would actually give up. Who would come and die. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.